So some neighbor stops by. They're like, hey, um, Adam. <laughs> As he's trying not to remark on the peculiar, pungent smell waving out of your head. that particular scent? Um, so, is that a candle? Are you dissolving a body? Somewhere? <laughs> and what's happening? <laughs> That's actually, that would be the best... <laughs> Best case scenario. I would love to hear that. Are you dissolving a body? Because that's like the go-to. Like that's right. where his head is. <laughs> that's the first option. Yeah. Because the reason I came over today, actually, <laughs> I have a favorite. It's a big one. Uh, but it seems like you're halfway there. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents, everyone. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. Today I'm being joined by which Zafdig. How are you, my dear? I'm quite well. How are you? Quite well, also. It is, uh, it's a three-day weekend, so I'm kind of stoked about that. For me. Right. Do you get three-day weekends during your studies, or is it like always study? Um, well, currently, because I don't have, I'm not teaching or doing other kinds of research assignments. I'm just studying. So much so that I sometimes lose track of what day it is in the week. Oh, <laughs> because I don't have a fixed schedule right now because yeah. it's all research. When I'm uh, teaching and have other duties, then certainly I'm very much um, <laughs> attached to the days of the week. Uh, but not right now, no. Do you spend a lot of time um, exploring your new environment that you're in? Or are you really just sort of head in the books? Uh, I've done a bit of both uh, because currently in Nor where I am in Norway, it's, it's soul-crushingly expensive <laughs> to travel anywhere. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just beyond um, what I would have imagined that any time I step out of my house. So uh, I've walked this entire city and I started walking one because it's nice and you want to learn the city. And two, it's eight dollars just to take the bus. So that's a, regular, a regular bus fare is eight bucks. Um, I've had a pint in a pub maybe three or four times in the entire almost six months I've been here because a pint is twenty two dollars. <laughs> so, what the what? Yeah, so the things I would normally do in a city would be like walk around, have a caf have a coffee somewhere, people watch, you know, sometimes strike up conversations, that kind of thing that would involve money. I'm not doing as much. I'm certainly walking around a lot, um, but I'm not <laughs> going to a lot of social gatherings because it's just too much. I have uh, scheduled like in the past and a few coming up, um, a few trips around Norway. You're here, you have to see some things, but mm -hmm. because a weekend costs you a grand, um, it means that I'm not doing very many of them. Holy just everything hell. is just so. <laughs> I mean, I so when I go to the grocery store, I carry my iPhone and I do a conversion to see like what I'm paying for things. And every single time, I'm shocked <laughs> and stunned. Like you think I would have gotten used to it by now. Like, oh, this jar of mayonnaise is ten bucks. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yep. What? God, do I do I really need mayonnaise with my? Tuna. Why <laughs> is that so expensive? Um, everything in Norway, is, as I gathered, is subsidizing local agriculture. 
so it does, it's not really about the cost of things, yeah. but that they are, they have, um, uh, they're, that everything is padded so that it sort of funds um, what's happening with local things. You don't have a lot of options in Norway. So you go to the grocery store in America and you have an entire aisle of Gatorade. You know, yeah. just one one aisle, a massive aisle of 37 <laughs> flavors. An obscene amount of Gatorade. An obscene amount of choice for everything. Everything <laughs> you can imagine. In America, there is choice and Canada is very similar in that way. Um, in Norway, it's like, welcome to our country. Here is your option. <laughs> here is the deodorant you're gonna wear and here's the mayonnaise that you're gonna buy and here is the car that you should option. all yeah, yeah. here's the haircut you should yeah. adopt and have done uh, so there's a lot of homogeny and which is a bit bizarre when you come from North America especially in a multicultural city so Montreal is my home city um, which is so incredibly diverse I don't even know how to explain it so that when I come to a city, which is uh, where I am in Norway, which is relatively small, I think about 200,000 people here, um, and 95% of them are white, mostly blonde, <laughs> and oh. Norwegian, it's, it's a bit of a culture shock. I saw a black person. I know that there are different people of color here, but like I saw one the other day, and I swear I, um, I had this urge to run up to him and just be like, so like, what is it like for you here? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I didn't because he might have thought I was either being incredibly racist or rude or whatever. <laughs> and he could have been born in Norway. And you don't know. Yeah, right? yeah. They, there are certainly second generation um, uh. people. But still, I just wanted to be like, oh, my God, if it's weird for me, like if I feel like the exotic foreigner at times, like what is it like for you? <laughs> just, Hell yeah. I can't imagine, like, you know, socially how he's treated. And most Norwegians are incredibly... Um, uh, nice and polite and it's not about that so it doesn't have that same sort of embedded racism that the united states has but mm -hmm. like any homogenous society you introduce a foreign concept there's going to be people who react with mm, i'm not quite sure what <laughs> oh, yeah. what your deal is but i'm going to treat you with suspicion so um it's it's just weird to sort of always see white people all the time uh, because it's not something i've ever experienced fucking whitey man <laughs> He's taking over fucking Norway. Uh, yeah, taking over, sure. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so, well, I actually just saw... I, I had a, a very first for me, which was really exciting yesterday. I, I met my sister, one of my sisters, for the very first time ever. Oh, wow. <clears throat> so, as a young man, my uh, parents got divorced, and... Apparently, my father thought it was a great idea to spread his seed across the planet, which sure. means that I have brothers and sisters <laughs> I've never even met before, like never even heard of before. Mm -hmm. um, and I just actually heard about a couple of them yesterday for the very first time as well. But oh, wow. Her. So not just like another family, <clears throat> but like many different... Mm. Like his seed is quite literally a little bit everywhere. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just a really great night on the town where right. you just sort of... <laughs> <laughs> do, do the um uh never mind that was gonna be gross um <laughs> yeah yeah we can stop that line okay right so it's not like that <laughs> uh, i call that friday night but it's it's a lot more like you know he's just meeting a lot of different women and having fun and having kids and i don't know if he'd ever knew about condoms i felt like he probably should have at his age but and yeah. I, here's another thing i found out he I knew this all along. I 
but it, it really hit home yesterday after meeting my sister for the first time in that he died like seven years from my age. So I'm like creeping up on right. his death age, which as a human being, like getting to the point where your parents die is, it's a weird sensation. You almost feel like, well, that's my limit, even though it's not, it has nothing to do with it. It is like you're faced to, you're forced to recognize mortality a little bit more in that one little moment of recognition of age. It was sure. weird, but she was fantastic. I mean, super cool. We have similar behaviors and humor, which is refreshing because no one in my family has a humor like I do. Right. You know, right. being able to see the sort of the darker side, more uh, at times perverse and obscene sides and comment on them. And she got all the references, which was really fantastic. So that was fun. Downsides, she has kids and I have kids and they don't always get to long like kids never really sure. do. So yeah. that was <laughs> always fun trying to make sure they didn't kill each other or themselves. <laughs> Are they similar but, in age? Yeah, actually not kids? far. Um, yeah. So uh, our oldest's are a year apart and our uh, like her middle and my youngest are a year or two apart. So it's really, right. really freakishly close. But, and here's the other thing though, like I, <clears throat> humble brag here, I have a fantastic marriage and I have a really good family and she doesn't have, like she, right. she was abandoned by, well, here's the thing. I think because I know none of you care about this, but I'm, I'm going to try to extrapolate it to, to have some <laughs> meaning in some way. Um, her family unit broke apart upon divorce and her mom wasn't a supportive human being. Mine on the other hand was. And so I think because we had such a different support center, you know, she turned into that uh, very much searching for the daddy type sure. behavior. So in, in her men that she would look to, she always went with the people who would leave her or abuse her. It was just, you know, in her psyche, like that's what men are supposed to sure. do. And so this is what I'm going to look for in men. And it's an unfortunate case. Like you see this so much in yeah. our culture nowadays. And I, I don't know if it's nowadays because we're more aware of it or if it's always been going on, but it just seems like in, in, in broken homes or abusive homes, the children are just perpetuating the cycle that they've been born into sure. and it just damages everyone down the line. And being able to see my own sister that I just meet having to go through this and I don't even know that she's fully aware of that, that right. side of it, like that she's just perpetuating the cycle that she started in. Um, it's weird. So you, all, whenever you see someone broken and whenever I see someone broken, you want to fix them. Like you're just like, yeah. if you, especially because as a Satanist, I I have tools set in place to benefit my life. I'm like, I, I know you. I know you can benefit your own life if you just were a little more self-aware, if you were a little bit stronger of an individual, if you had a little bit more perspective. But then, because I'm a Satanist, I don't really care that much about it. Right. I, I say that a bit. We're all different. I don't <laughs> invest myself in other people that much. Um, not for any particular reason. It's just, I, I like to invest myself in, in the people I am immediately connected to, like my family. So it's like on one hand, I'm watching her in her life, just really not being in a good place. I mean, she's getting better, but knowing that she could be so much better off if she just took a step to the left. Right. You know what but I mean? here's, here's my, here's my, um, input on that. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, um, you know, I'd have no big solutions to the world. But so I have a very, um, personal, very similar personal history to your sister then. Um, my parents um, separated very early. My father is, uh, oh, I don't know, a narcissistic, <laughs> um, uh, self-absorbed. About your dad? Sociopath, right? <laughs> so, and I, I met him as a, as a teenager and I tried for about a decade to, get to know him as a man, not, not as a father, because I yeah, recognized, yeah. okay, he's never going to be a father, but like, what is he like as a person? And after a decade, I realized I don't even like this person. And it was kind of refreshing. <laughs> it was so refreshing. It was like so freeing for me, actually, to be like, yeah. you know what? I don't like this creep at all. I mean, he, every time he, he subtly like insults me or hurts me, you know, like if I don't behave in exactly the way that he wants me to behave, and let's face it, I am never going to do that. <laughs> like, never. Um, then, then he will try to find a way to punish me for it. Because he has an image Damn. of himself. He has this grandiose image of himself as this super cool renaissance man. And if you say, well, yeah, but you abandoned like all these people, and you stole from some of them, and cheated on all your women, and <laughs> none of your children, you never took care of your, any of your children in any way, not financially, not emotionally, nothing. You know, like, how can you see yourself as this? And it wasn't even accusing when I would try to have these conversations with him, because I'd already abandoned the idea of him being a father, right? Yeah. And his reaction was always, uh, to blame uh, me being brainwashed by my mother. It's like, oh, your mother's brainwashed. And I'm like, she's brainwashed you. She's raised you to hate me. And I was like, my mother never talks about you because she finds it too painful. Like she's, My mother never really spoke about him at all. So I didn't know a lot going into like what he would be like. And, and so that would be typical of my father's reaction, that me as an adult woman couldn't come to my own conclusions he automatically thinks, yeah. well, feminism. He once told me that, you know, women watching Oprah is what <laughs> caused them all to hate men. And I was like, <laughs> I haven't watched Oprah. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not on the Oprah bandwagon. <laughs> you yeah. know, so you can't. Uh, my point is, I understand what it means to not have a blueprint for the kind of man that you would like. Mm-hmm. So most of my early boyfriends were exactly that same. So none of them mistreated me. None. Uh, well, barring a few small examples that didn't, <laughs> that didn't last long at all, like because something that something that hints at abuse I could recognize, mm-hmm. but that kind of sort of emotionally distant person that would uh, ultimately see you as disposable is not as easily recognized at first because you're getting along and you're flirting and you're having fun and you're not, you know, I'm not sort of trying to like put a whole bunch of investment into a person if I just met them. Like I'm not trying to yeah. like <laughs> project too much. I always try to approach a relationship like, let this man be his own man and let him show me what he has to offer. But even if I say that and how rational it sounds, <laughs> I recognize many of my relationships ended up in that very similar way. Ultimately, um, there's an investment in intimacy that you have to make. It's a choice. And they would never make that choice. Mm-hmm. So, so it doesn't really progress beyond a certain, a certain level of what true intimacy is. And I'm not talking about physical intimacy it can coincide, but not always. So this idea of, well, then what do you look for? Like how, if, if everything you have ever been attracted to mirrors the, the, the father model, because that's the only thing you know, yeah. how do you begin to recognize something that would, is what you want? And I can tell you that it's not as easy to then look at the men around you that you may be interested in, and to, because you don't just automatically develop attraction to a better man. It's not 
It's not something that just happens. So even if you recognize that who you have sexual feelings for and who you desire are men who are like this, and even if you decide, okay, I want something better for myself, what's your next step? You can't force an attraction. You can't force, you know, so you, this sort of this slow adjustment of, all right, I'm going to start dating in a very proactive way. Um, I'm going to, you know, enjoy people as much as I can, whatever I'm comfortable with. And I'm going to be much more conscious of when I'm compromising myself. Like when, um, because this is very subtle. Like if there is a tension, like you have a fight in a relationship and where I had used to maybe always sort of backed off and be like, oh, let this man be his own man and not fight for what I want. And it could be something very small. But I realized that those small things, if you're not being heard, you know, are an indication of how much of their, whether or not they're putting in uh, their best foot forward. So now I have this sort of new condition. Like, I don't care if you commit to me. You don't know me. We've just been on a few dates. Me as a person is irrelevant. However, I expect someone to commit to the effort. Is this your best effort? Is this uh, argument we're having? Is this dinner we're having? Is this um, whatever we're doing? Is this, are you committing to the best effort now? Or are you constantly holding back emotionally? Are you, con- are you sabotaging intimacy? Are you avoiding those conversations? <laughs> so that cumulative overall, like I can look back and say, okay, most of the time this person put in the best effort. Because that was, when I started to look at it as a, sort of an equation like that, it became a bit better. But I can say it's not this automatic thing. Because yeah, I find it sometimes very facile, especially for women. Women who are, are in uh, loving relationships, and they, they are always have these ju- judgments about women who are in bad relationships. And I always think, well, you know what it was. If your father loved you and you had that connection, every man you've ever been attracted to will probably sort of have this imprint. You don't know what it's like to not experience it. So how can you recognize something you have never experienced? If I've never experienced that, how could I recognize it? It's entirely foreign. So that my approach is, sounds very scientific, but it, there, certainly my dating in my 30s is way, way better than in my 20s. <laughs> I can tell you, I don't spend um, crying nights alone anymore because some guy decided to like snap his fingers and no longer be interested in me because we reached a point where here was the choice of, oh, well, I could become uh, better friends and a bit more intimate with this woman, or I could just, you know, fuck off and move on to the next woman who doesn't know that I cannot commit at all to anything. (laughs) Right. And now when I reach that point, I'm like, all right, cool. That's good. I'm going to go off and do my own thing because I don't waste time on someone who doesn't care about me that much. So it, it, it makes things a bit more, well, it makes things a lot easier and a lot more fun. I also am not as uh, concerned if someone doesn't want me. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's plenty of men that do, so I just kind of just don't, like I don't take it this big yeah, personal thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <clears throat> so uh, I'm not as, uh, it, it's, it's, it's not as precarious like it always sort of seemed very a very fragile thing in my 20s, like to invest in someone. And now it's not that as if it, it doesn't hurt as much when you have a, an, a fun thing or an emotional thing that doesn't work out. I don't think that's ever going to go away. But I can tell you that the time, um, the amount of time that I spend mourning over it is a lot less. Yeah. <laughs> and I also appreciate what it was for whatever it was. So I'm not, you know, it's not like this, the highs and lows mm. aren't as drastic. 
you know. So even at the highs, sometimes become a bit less um, ecstatic. But I kind of view that more as a, a maturity factor also because I'm not investing so much into it so quickly. Yeah, I mean, there is absolutely a, a sense of uh, uh, adult perspective that you're having about everything. Self-analysis and relationship analysis. Yeah. I don't think everyone does that. Well, I, I know for a fact everyone doesn't. Whoa, hold no, on. Most people just react <laughs> their entire life. Their entire dating life is reactionary to their yeah. parents and from one partner to the next. Like, oh, I didn't like this from the past boyfriend. The next boyfriend's going to be this. It's nothing as proactive. And I've noticed that so much that I find it um, uh, depressing. But <laughs> <laughs> I think it's refreshing to to see that in other people. Um, and, you know, I just met her yesterday for the first time. We spent hours together. So, you know, the better part of a day. So I don't know if she's there yet. I didn't get the indication that she's there yet. Um, sure. But it yeah. is very much something that, you know, if, if you start to care about something, you're going to want to help them have that perspective. I'm not entirely sure you can. And, and I'm no. not entirely sure I want to even try because then I'm going to be that douchebag that's thinking he's better you know, trying to push them into a different way. So I'm I just like, I also spent eh, hands years off. in therapy. Like I had a therapist help me through all this shit. Like I'm yeah. not, you know, like, and I, I mean, maybe because I also worked um, in a, in a mental health clinic for a long time. Like I don't have that same taboo with seeing a therapist. Yeah. Like to me, it was very much like, well, if I'm the one that can has to change my relationships, then what's the best way to do that is to seek a professional that could help me through it. So it was, to me, that was one of the most proactive things. Like, okay, here's my issue. Um, how can we tackle this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, my therapist was great. You know, like, it's not as if you don't uh, sometimes question um, uh, what, like, what you're doing there and if it's all working. But ultimately, I never viewed therapy as the I never viewed the therapist herself as someone that has a magic wand that could fix all my problems. And I think a lot of people who go into therapy do, and that's their first mistake. I always viewed it as this person's going to help me um, look at things in a way that's going to help me. She's going to help me uh, not lie to myself, mm -hmm. right? Going to gently, because <laughs> I'm sensitive, <laughs> um, but like sort of slowly help me see the choices that I'm making and that it is a choice that you make that can influence your life. So. Um, so I do recommend therapy for almost everyone now. I just yeah. feel like, hey man, <laughs> you got a do problem? yourself talk. a favor. Just yeah. talk. Talk it out. Yeah. I think that's important too because, I mean, the largest part of therapy is just you really formulating your thoughts and getting them out. And yes. I think that's such an important part of, of – we experience things so, – I know we're, we're like <laughs> – half an hour into the show and we haven't even started right. the show I, I do want to sort of explore this just a little bit more um as human beings we take in so much stimulus uh from so many different people and our environments and we can't always we can't always work through what it all means right. um there and because we're just not honest in our in our expression and in the way that people react to us and project onto us so it does take a lot to be able to really work through everything that you experience uh, yeah. in a day, but I mean, in life in general. And so if you are really trying to um, be a better version of you, which I think really is the core of what Satanism is all about, you do need to be able to, in some way, like break down those experiences and, and sure. really like firmly understand what it's all about. So that means your own personal life experience, how other people treat you, how that is reflected upon you by allowing them to treat you in this way. 
and at the end of all of this, if you are giving yourself the opportunity to work through it, whether it's through therapy or uh, a supportive friend or family member or a total stranger that's in the role of a counselor, you're actually going to be growing so much more than your peers and it's going to help you in your future relationships. It's going to help you in your future profession, uh, in your hobbies. Everything that you do, every expression you have is going to be a little bit crisper, a little stronger, a little yeah. bit more powerful. And ultimately, I, I think it, it's going to mean that you're going to be so much healthier in the end. It's, it's totally worth it. I think that was a fantastic suggestion. All right, let's see some other notes here. Sorry. <laughs> um, okay, I just want everyone to know at the very top of every show, uh, we do have that. I would like if I made a take on a strange journey. You can actually leave us your own, and I encourage you to do so. In your strangest voice, in your real voice, uh, it, we've had people sing, actually performing. We've had people doing, uh, you know, famous ca fictional characters uh, from TV or movies. Send us yours. You can actually leave it at a voicemail, 801-899-6168, and that's plus one, 809, I'm sorry, plus one, 801-899-6168 if you're calling from outside the country. It is just an answering machine, so just leave it however you want, and I'll, I'll capture it, and I'll uh, perform it, or edit it, and, and put it out here. Uh, or you can just record it yourself and shoot it to info at 9centspodcast.com. We appreciate your interaction, and this is one way of uh, adding a little bit of color and your own stamp on 9 cents. So we encourage you to do so, and we appreciate it. Uh, there are going to be some uh, updates to the website. We have, obviously, Between the Horns, brand new segment. I'm going to be added, <clears throat> excuse me, adding up on the website. You're going to be able to isolate each of those segments as they've been released but also the brand new one, something different, uh, with Heather Height. So we're going to be premiering the very first episode of that this week, uh, following immediately Unorthodoxy with Witch Zafdig. So let's touch on that really quick. This is episode 10, which, what are we talking about today? We're going to be talking about alien cults and UFO religions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's very exciting. Uh, so fun. So much fun. <laughs> um, so we'll start with Unorthodoxy with Witch Zaftig. We're going to go to something different with Heather Height after that. And then we've got another Agent Provocateur. Darren, episode 22. This is going to be good. And we're going to close it out with an old Nick's peep show. So stay tuned. This is going to be a great episode. Let's do a little Unorthodoxy with Witch Zaftig. <laughs> Fascination is a binding, which comes from the spirit of the witch, through the eyes of him that is bewitched, entering to Fascination is a binding, now the instrument of fascination is the spirit, namely a certain pure, lucid, subtle generated of the pure blood by the heat of the heart. Alright, so this week um, we're going to be talking about aliens and UFO religions, and um, so essentially there's this sort of uh, zeitgeist in popular culture and obsession with UFOs and aliens. So we have a question from uh, Jeff Wilson who says that he would love to hear us talk a bit more about uh, UFO religions and he mentions Raelians, um, Heaven's Gate and Scientology uh, because he finds the concept of sci-fi religions incredibly interesting. So it is, uh, we're going to sort of delve upon a few of those. Because we've discussed Raelians a few times before, I'm going to omit them from this discussion, uh, but still you can easily research a bit about them. But I will talk about Scientology and, and Heaven's Gate. Um, <clears throat> so essentially, what 
these types of religions are. They emerge more or less um, around the turn of the century. They're uh, a mid-century um, obsession that uh, they spiritualize the notion of aliens and UFO sightings. So most people in popular culture are sort of familiar with the conspiracy theorist type of UFO obsession mm-hmm. of sightings, abductions, um, and there's lots of, uh, of amateur investigators that dissect all types of books and <laughs> fiction. And they have newsletters and forums and conventions. And most of them actually are pretty diligent in what they rule out as UFO or uh, alien contact. Uh, but just to demonstrate, it's not just these particular people that are spiritualizing uh, religion, um, popular culture itself has a total obsession um, with, from Roswell and the X-Files and all kinds of things. This was, especially in the 1990s, um, there was a sort of an explosion of this. It, but the first explosion happened in the mid-1950s-ish. Um, so the term I wanted to, I found this factoid, uh, flying saucers actually comes from an American businessman um, who was from Idaho, who was flying his private plane over the Cascade Mountains, and he reported, this is in 1947, he reported viewing uh, 10 shiny disks that flew like a saucer would if you skipped it across the water. And when this fact became sort of reported, um, the notion of flying saucers emerged. So that's where that, that particular thing comes from. Wow. What's interesting is that once you have this sighting, uh, different people then uh, report sightings with similar flying saucers. So it's sort of interesting that there's sort of a, an, an echo effect um, for how something gets uh, mistranscribed or misunderstood. Because mm-hmm. he didn't really say flying saucers, he yeah. just sort of said shining disks. But then when it gets reported that way, different sightings then echo that language. Um, <clears throat> Uh, you can also look up the Roswell stuff that also happened the similar year that there was a, um, a farmer that found this debris in New Mexico, Roswell, and the army uh, sort of swept in and said it was a, a weather balloon that had crashed. In the 1980s, there was a book of investigators that sort of claimed it was a cover-up for all different things, and after that, there was an explosion of interest in Roswell. The reason I bring that up is because we are obsessed with alien contact. <laughs> and in the 1950s, um, with the industrial age, with uh, competing over going to the moon with uh, Russia, uh, so the NASA investing in all this money and uh, the possibility, the dream of going to the moon and America's um, potential uh, as a, a frontier. Star Trek episodes themselves, <laughs> yeah. it's there in popular culture. All those old, um, uh, there's also pulp magazines that have depictions of different uh you know, space invaders and space warriors. And um, they had those laser guns. <laughs> Barbara Bella in her very sexy miniskirt yes, and boots. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's everywhere. So it's not um, unheard of that then different groups interpret these kinds of ideas in a spiritualized way. And I say spiritualized in a kind of a loose way just to indicate that they begin to fall into a category that scholars call religion. Um, because some of them, it, many of them, interestingly, are rejecting them, uh, rejecting what they're doing as religious or spiritual. And many of these types of groups call themselves scientists, or at least um, champion, championing science. Hmm. <laughs> so I'll give you an example of what that means. So in Scientology, started by uh, Ron L. Hubbard, so he claims that 
humans are basically good, but they've been influenced by these uh, negative past experiences and residual painful memories like within us. And that he calls these engrams. So even the notion of gram, like something uh, measurable, he calls it engram, but it's sort of this idea of, well, this is something quantifiable and uh, measurable. And that we offer technologies that can rid you of these residual uh, bad things that have control over you. So you have some sort of toxin, essentially, uh, in your body. And we offer technologies that can help you not only measure how much of these things you have, but we can help you get into the clear. They call it going clear. And when you are clear, you operate at the, the highest level, what they call an operating thetan. And what that means is your thetan, which is in every human, is uh, the true nature of humanity. It is your immortal spiritual being, and it has many lives um, through reincarnation. But they're not saying that this sort of spiritual thing that comes from God, they're saying it's a quantifiable, measurable, reasonable thing. And, and the way that you know that is because they have technology that can measure it. So uh, it may sound far-fetched to you all, but just think about the world around us in terms of naturalism. We like to say that science um, uh, is, is the observable, the empirical method, like what you can see. Mm. But in, in actuality, um, science is always being interpreted through its various technologies, telescopes and microscopes and um, different things that measure gamma rays and light, because the human perception is incredibly limited. So we build technologies to then look at the world um, in different ways. Like we can actually look at UV light um, and we can right, right. for different things. Um, we look at the, scar, the stars and the different types of light. And that's how most scientists, astronomers look at the sky. They're, they're interpreting light in ways uh, that the naked eye and the human brain alone cannot view. So it's not that far-fetched to think of what scientists do with their various instruments, to then these types of religions doing the same thing. So it's true that um, what we would consider true science um, would, you know, these uh, what what Scientology's claims to do would never actually pass the scientific method. But it doesn't have to because the practitioners are claiming that it does. So if they say, well, my experience was I was a drug addict, uh, you know, I was a criminal, and then through these various treatments with their technology, I became a better person. I have a successful job. I have a successful marriage. I'm no longer on drugs. I'm a productive member of society. Then for them, that's proof. They are the empirical method. This entirely, these technologies worked. Mm -hmm. Around the 1950s, with sort of this scientific explosion and obsession uh, in popular culture was very serious technological advancements. So um, science had this sort of uh, notion of being the objective arbiter of truth with a capital T. So that the technological advancements or the scientific advancements via its technological machines, essentially, the apparatuses, the instruments, these complex tools, um, which, especially in medicine, developed uh, leaps and bounds in terms of advancements of life uh, extension and improvement of quality. So the idea that science can improve human life then uh, gets interpreted by many of these other groups also. So that there's sort of a, the, science holds this quasi-religious position with these types of groups and they spiritualize the scientific advancements. So the argument goes like this. If eternal life was solely the pur purview of spiritual religion in the past, 
yet uh, the popular notion of science would improve life quality and expectancy, then these types of religions claim that there were spiritual laws, just like the laws of physics, um, that could be harnessed and applied to transform ordinary individuals. So they're saying there are technologies that can transform your life. So uh, just the way that technology transforms society, uh, we have instruments that can transform your spirit, if we sort of call, that, call it that. So they just so UFO religions draw on the perceived legitimacy of natural science. Um, salvation via technology. Let me give you another example. So Heaven's Gate. Most people know of Heaven's Gate. Um, in March uh, 26, 19, 1997, 39 people committed mass suicide uh, in order with the goal to reach uh, an alien spacecraft that was following the comet Haley-Bopp. Most people you know, know of this because it was incredibly sensationalized. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> What's interesting is that they never claimed that they were spiritual or religious. They claimed that they were scientists. They self-understood as, as, as promoting a scientific truth and that their ideas on extraterrestrials or ESP um, were scientific advancements. They were reasonable, rational people and that their goal was to advance themselves to a, what they called a a higher operating individual, but via scientific things. So they positioned themselves uh, against religion, which, which they claim was emotional, based on falsehoods and faith. Even though they rejected religion, um, <clears throat> they were highly influenced by biblical stories, but wherein these miraculous events in the Bible were reinterpreted as scientific uh, because of superior alien technology. So, Jesus was an extraterrestrial essentially. And his resurrection is not a spiritual resurrection. It was a, a biological and natural transformation, which allowed him to then uh, sort of rise to an alien spacecraft. And that most of the miraculous stories in the Bible can be interpreted in this way. This is transformation via technology. Um, so at the, they called this a, a, a metamorphosis. But it's kind of like an old-school alchemy. So when they commit suicide, they have a, a very similar approach. Death isn't this... They didn't think their spirit would reach um, the, this comet, I mean, this spacecraft. They thought that their body would transform itself somehow. I'm not quite sure the mechanics of it, but there would be this sort of transformation after death into the alien spacecraft uh, as a scientific, verifiable thing at some point. So yeah. many... Well, some scholars, not all, would like sort of tend to sort of dismiss that because he does quote the Bible in many ways. But he always sort of reaffirms it as this is science. This is scientific truth. So his notion of alien contact is, is about, well, this is just areas that we haven't quite explored yet. Um, but it's like that Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah, Clarke. I think so. His quote, like any sufficiently advanced science will look like magic. So they're yeah. co-opting this kind of idea. Um, uh, what I find most interesting about the UFO cult types of um, religions is that there's always this hope of humanity advancing. So they're still viewing it like a salvational type of thing. Human ha humanity has all these problems, there's war, there's disease, but somehow the technology via these uh, more advanced aliens is going to help us solve all of our problems, our, mm -hmm. our addiction, our crime, our wars, our disease. Um, so, 
So even if they, they are rejecting the term religious, there's still a salvational component. Humans are kind of bad um, because we do all this shitty stuff to each other. And here's a solution. Wow. <laughs> that Oh, God, I love this so much. Is this something that's just inherent in us as <clears throat> human beings that regardless of whether we look at science in a scientific way or if we try to spiritualize science thereby uh, justifying the spiritual side of it is this just inherent in us we have to make sense of the world around us immediately and and have it codified and put in a little box because i think so i mean it, I, I, it seems to me like every all human behavior ever but even from scientific philosophers who you know mm. would reject a spiritual entity but still are trying to sort of solve complex problems with different types of ideas. So they're still doing the same type of thing. Here's a problem X. Um, well, here's my solution or one of my many solutions. Mm -hmm. So they're always identifying the problem and, and introducing a solution. Now, whether you agree that X is an actual problem is what differs right, <laughs> for a right. lot of things. So in Satanist, Satanism, um, we don't really identify uh, humans as being all good or bad. We're just so our ex, our problem isn't the same thing. Mm. Um, we're not saying that humanity needs to be saved or that we need to overcome our base natures or any of those things. There's different types of problems. We tend to view X as um, humanity at large being largely reactionary and a little bit, well, more than a little bit foolish. Mm. <laughs> but so we still identify humanity as the problematic, but we just don't have grand solutions for it. We're just like, well, we can't control it. So the only thing we can control is ourselves, so we better put maximum effort into that. So we still have problem X, solution Y, just on a very different types of, it's a different type of discussion. It is also interesting because there's, at least the difference for me, the way I see it, is that naked science admits we don't know answers searches mm -hmm. for those and it's never a contained thing it's never like well right. we solved that theory wipe our hands let's move to right. the next it's always like well this is how we understand it now now let's move to the next part and that may change but when right. you come into these scientific religions it does very much seem like they're they're using this uh tiny portion of science maybe even just the name science in order to create the box and sure. keep it contained without having to re-examine anything. And so yeah. as, let me ask you, as, a, um, uh, as an academic, do you still see that as science? Like, I know they describe it that way, but as an academic, do you recognize that as, as them using science to justify or them just trying to twist science to justify? Uh, <laughs> okay, so I view it as social science. So, and what I mean by that is, um, I think it's entirely natural. So, most individuals, myself included, um, don't understand hard, hard science. Yeah. I mean, you put, um, you know, complex math in front of me, and I don't know what I'm reading. You put complex foreign language in front of me, and I can actually. It won't take me long. So. I'm kind of good with languages. Like even when I don't know, if you give me a little hints or take some work, I can actually figure some things out myself. I cannot do that with mathematics. Um, I just can't. I'm just not as good with mathematics as I am with language and ideas. But the point I'm trying to make is I don't understand physics. I mean, I can, you know, I can read some of these books of academics that um, write quite well, you know, um, 
Hawkins and uh, Dawkins, <laughs> um, Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking. Um, right. Those kinds of people tend to, they have advanced theoretical ideas that they know how to communicate to a general population that when you read makes you feel smart. But I couldn't do the kind of work they're doing. And I think most of the people that even claim themselves as being more scientifically minded don't really understand the secret occult language of scientists. We don't. It's very mysterious to us, like what they're doing. I, every now and then, will read a science journal. And um, I have read thousands of academic journals in my field, and I can understand them quite well. I read a science journal and I have no idea like what they're <laughs> talking about. And then I then rely on the journalist who's interpreting it and knowing how most journalists interpret science, scientific research, I know I'm yeah. getting only half of the story. But my point is we are all interpreting hard science, either via the journalist or popular culture. We are all interpreting these ideas and what they claim their results are. And even science th scientists themselves are often disagreeing about their results and mm -hmm. what they're finding. But you're correct in that they're always pushing forward to have new discoveries. That's the entire point. Um, I view, uh, if we're going to talk about what's natural, and if we're going to sort of say that what's natural is scientific, and that there's an argument to be made there, then I think it's entirely natural for humanity to um, re religionize <laughs> their ideas about the world. Yeah. So whatever the next fad and popular obsession is going to be, um, uh, there's, there's time, like who knows whatever the next thing is, um, someone will then, you know, make it some sort of religion or spirituality. I think that's entirely natural, unavoidable. And I find that even within the church of Satan, people who claim that religion's on a decline and it's dying, um, clearly aren't really looking at the world it's it's not dying at all <laughs> mm -hmm. we have the only thing we have a decrease of is people in uh mainstream religion so in censuses and things like that uh so we have less people declaring themselves as from their parents or grandparents religion but we have some this huge resurgence of people talking about their spirituality exploring different ideas um and very few of them claim to be uh entirely secular and entirely atheistic in that sort of hard atheistic way that we, yeah. we might, which, which I think is sort of understood of there's no spiritual dimension to human existence whatsoever. Very few of people who reject religion are actually those people, like extremely few. Um, Cause they're always sort of saying like uh, small things that give me an indication of how they think they were late um, getting to an appointment, uh, but somehow they hit every green light, and the elevator opened right as they arrived, and there was no impediments. And so it just seems to sort have of happened that they normally would have been late, but when they got there, they were right on time, and they say, oh, thank the universe. And they kind of mean it. Somehow the universe has some sort of thought that is invested into them getting to their appointment on time. <laughs> and ultimately, I think it's humans don't want to sort of recognize that they're um, just this very small, minuscule organism parasite on this uh, planet Earth, which is a rock of molten lava hurling through space, which is entirely indifferent to our existence. You don't have to be romantic <laughs> about it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I personally find that idea super exciting. Really? So, yeah. So to me, it's like, okay, my life is entirely insignificant. Great. I am wide open. I have the freedom to do anything i like the idea that there's not some 
entity or God or something mm-hmm. that has some sort of plan or destiny for me because that makes me feel suffocated. I don't like to be too controlled in relationships with people I really love. <laughs> so to me, you know, like I'm the kind of person, you want to make me happy? Just let me be who I am at all times and we are totally cool. <laughs> so, so to me, the idea of some sort of controlling entity makes me feel like, well, then what's the point? That's where I feel nihilistic. I recognize that for most of humanity, it's the opposite. The idea that they are entirely insignificant makes them feel nihilistic. Yeah. Um, so, so I recognize my particular quirk. And I, although I would assume that even among Satanists, many of them have a similar kind of notion that really no one's out there controlling them. Even if I do think there are different um, levels of how people think about the universe and its mystical components, if I can use yeah. that word, and and effects of ma- and practice of magic so satanists have a, a spectrum of how they're looking at these things but none of them as far as i know are saying aliens implanted um <laughs> some sort of <laughs> some sort of organism inside us that we have to realize for our true potential like none of them are doing that but they're sort of open there has this sort of range of you can call it a gray area, I suppose. But there's a range of yeah. idea of, of having a suspension of disbelief that is fun, that you sort of willfully engage in. Um, so it's not, it's not nihilism that says nothing is meaningful. It's sort of a nihilism that says, well, nothing's meaningful, but so let's make this meaningful. Mm-hmm. Like, let's be proactive about it. It is interesting because there's not that much of a difference on the surface layer. Uh, you know, when you're speaking of uh, Scientology, their whole premise is that innately we are flawed by our experiences, by our cultures, by the way we were raised or just experienced life. And and our goal is to better ourselves. Mm-hmm. The way you do it is dramatically different. And the reasons for it on the yeah. below the surface are wildly different. Wildly. But the point being on the surface, it's kind of the same. So these these common themes that you find throughout religions, whether it's uh, we are made of sin and we must connect with some superior, or we recognize we are just this, this lump of flesh and we have to somehow improve ourselves. And that's just mm-hmm. wildly oversimplifying everything. But no, but it's a- these common threads, we're interpreting wildly differently between everything. But the fact is, is what what connects it all is that we are interpreting and we're mm-hmm. trying to interpret it the best way that we can uh, in order to somehow connect with the universe around us. Yeah. As a scholar, do you see it that because that idea itself, I think, is a little bit holistic, like we're all connected and, you know, um, with these behaviors well, and yes mannerisms. And no. and- so I do view it that way, but I tend to view that that way in terms of the rest of the Western world. Um, yeah. So, uh, it's very common in Western religions. But the idea of self-improvement is not common in Eastern religions. So anytime I want to uh, check myself before I wreck myself, if anyone gets that <laughs> reference, <laughs> um, I tend to start to look at how Eastern uh, religions practice and organize and think about the world. And it's very different. So within the West and the modern Western cultures, um, we have this idea of self-improvement and self-awareness. Like it's an ideal within our our culture at large and it has been for a while and it's been influenced by a variety of 
of things that sort of inform and play off of each other. But in the East, you don't, you don't have that. So the idea of, well, you have, you're born a particular way and you have to work to improve yourself. And it's just, it's just not a con it's not an ideal that, that is present in most mm. Eastern societies. They're much more about duty, what's dutiful and honorable, which may entirely contradict what you want as an individual. But what you want as an individual is not as important as what is the most honorable and dutiful thing. So their values are more about the collective duty and the collective honor and what it means in a society to look up to someone who has fulfilled their duty and their honor. Whereas we don't, we don't really view it that way. Like we mm -hmm. think the individual desires are paramount. Um, so yes, I think we're all connected if we're going to use that flowery term. Right, right. In the West, because we're all sort of living in the same kind of culture and being influenced by the same ideas. And in the East, uh, and, and even then in places like in the Southeast, you know, would be a different thing also. So as Western culture infects the rest of the world, <laughs> yeah, uh, and I use that term because it does, because it really is Western culture yeah, that yeah, is encroaching. Eastern yeah. culture doesn't encroach on us the way Western yeah. culture encroaches on the rest of the world. Um, it's interesting to see the conflict of some of these competing agendas of individualism versus the collective or honor and duty. Um, so honor to family and duty to family. Like they mean entirely different things. Uh, so there is a clash. Um, who knows what the, you know, it, it plays out in different ways. Um, like, Sometimes by generation, you know, um, the clash could be greater. But um, it's still, I don't think it's a universal human factor. So I certainly think there's a universal human factor for us to try to find some sort of meaning. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then I think by regions, you can make broad conceptual notions of how people are doing that because they're, they're co-influenced by social factors, social historical factors. Um, but those social historical factors are not universal so that then the concepts that people project as the values of their society uh can differ wildly well enlightening if that as makes sense always <laughs> absolutely yeah well good um, that's just so, that's that's such a great episode i i love <laughs> god damn it I, I love the science fiction and i love those sort of science fiction ideas when you start mixing them with religion and spirituality but uh, yeah. I don't believe any of it, but I think it's super interesting. It is super interesting. Really fucking cool. Um, so thanks, Jeff. Thanks for that question. Yeah. That was awesome. Where can other people submit their questions? They can email me directly at zaftigworks, all one word, at gmail.com. They can also check the blog, which is unorthodoxyblog.wordpress.com. There's a Facebook page, Unorthodoxy with which is Aftik. Um, so any one of those ways you can contact me and with uh, your questions. I can answer anything uh, on religion, new religions, cults, ritual, uh, esotericism, magic, Satanism, witchcraft, vampires. I'll do it all. <laughs> and yeah. uh, send me your, your queries and questions or even just something you'd like us to hear discuss and uh, we, will, we will get to it. I got to actually have a lot that I, I want to submit to, but I feel bad if I jump in front of someone else in line. Jump so. the queue, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, she's talking with me, so we're going to talk about what I want to talk about. Um, all right, well, let's do a little something different with uh, Heather Height, and uh, we'll move on with the show.
Welcome to the first episode of Something Different with Heather Height on Nine Cents. I am Heather Height, and this show is called Something Different. I'd like to explain in this first episode, since uh, some of you may not know, we live in Brooklyn, New York, on a very busy street in Flatbush, Brooklyn. This is uh, the birthplace of the Lords of Flatbush and the character Arthur Fonzarelli and Andrew Dice Clay. And that seems to mean that it's still unruly and loud here. Our studio is facing the street. So you, if you're not accustomed to living in the city, you're going to have hear a lot of authentic city sounds. This first segment, I would like to do a reading of my presentation that I did in D.C., um, the only downfall here for me is that it's going to sound better because I, I'm actually reading from my written work rather than trying to remember what I had written. I decided to do this because I believe that this piece gives everyone an idea of where I'm coming from, the direction that I'd like to take this show, and kind of exemplifies my feelings about comedy. So here we go. I saw my first stand-up comedian when I was seven. It was 1977, and George Carlin was hosting Saturday Night Live. My mom worked the late shift as a waitress. My sitters on the weekends were her teenage brothers and sisters, a few of their friends, and a sizable bong. So I was pretty much the most responsible person in the house on Saturday nights. I sat on the hardwood floor in front of the small black-and-white TV transfixed. I had no idea who this guy was or why he was talking, but I hung on every word. And if God is like us, I think perhaps he might be subject to physical laws. I mean, supernatural? But subject to physical laws? Possibly. It would explain a lot of things. It would explain why he always has to send an angel as a messenger. I mean, if he's God, why doesn't he show up? Hey, I got a message for you. Here you go. <laughs> Sends an angel. And the angel always flies in over a mountain. I mean, that implies the traversing of physical space. So possibly, uh, God is subject to physical laws. People say, well, if God is so benevolent, how can he let people suffer? He can't help it, lady. Subject to physical laws. Maybe he's only a uh, semi-supreme being. Because he's like us, and we're not perfect. I, I think God may not be perfect. I think his work shows that. <laughs> Take a look at the mountain range. They're all crooked. They're never in line. All different sizes. There are no two leaves the same. He can't even give two people the same fingerprints. He's had billions of years to work on this stuff. And everything he has ever made died. Everything so far, so far. I learned more in the combined seven minutes George Carlin was on stage than I had learned in all of my long seven years on earth. Questioned everything, even God, the importance of words, the hypocrisy of phrases, and the intricacies of a well-placed fart joke. Well, maybe not the last one. They weren't allowed to talk about stuff like that on TV in the 70s. George Carlin would never make it in today's world. You hear phrases like that a lot in my circles. You wouldn't get away with that today, or you couldn't write that today. 
George Carlin was arrested with Lenny Bruce for cursing. The second time Lenny Bruce was arrested, he was charged with obscenity for saying the word schmuck. Why do we think things are so bad now? Because we might have to apologize. Oh no, I can't say fag. Glad might make me apologize. I can't say rape. Some fat blogger might make me apologize. Oh no, I said fat. Someone might think I'm fat shaming and make me apologize. What the hell would Lenny Bruce have to say if all he had to do was apologize? Uh, by the way, are there any niggers here tonight? Are there any niggers here tonight? Is he that desperate for shock value? Are he scraped the bottom bound to be that cruel to say, are there any niggers here tonight? Have I ever talked about the Schwartz and they left the room? All the Moulin Johns or the arms were placated some southern by absence of voice when he ranted and raved about the nigger, nigger, niggers. Are there any niggers here? I know I'm working with a nigger. I think I see one nigger couple back there between those two niggers to three kikes. Thank God for the kikes. And two spicks and one mick. They have two spicks, one mech, three kikes, and one spunky, funky, hunky. Any more boogies? Three more sheenies, eight more guineas, six guineas, seven wops, six grease balls. I pass the six dykes, four kikes, and eight niggers. The point, if President Kennedy got on television every day and said, I would like to introduce all the niggers in my cabinet, and all the niggers called each other niggers, they oftentimes who but in front of the old phase, and every day you heard nigger, 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 in the second month, nigger would mean as much as good night or God bless you in your sneeze, or perhaps as much as I promise I'll hold to nothing but to do so help me God. Nigger would lose its impact and it'd never make any foil nigger cry when he came home from school. Zagornish gives it the power, Jim. I'm pretty sure he'd say fuck your apology. Everyone these days is a disenfranchised victim of some minority status. If Carlin was just starting comedy today, and told a fart joke at some open mic. Some blogger would be outraged because their aunt's cockapoo had irritable bowel syndrome, and they were triggered because Foo-Foo the cockapoo would come into the room late at night and sleep under the bed, causing them to develop a dog fart PTSD. American stand-up comedy was spawned from political incorrectness over a 100 years before it became a media catchphrase. The origins of the art form occurring somewhere between minstrel shows and Mark Twain. Comedians aren't noted for being social commentators until the 1960s and 70s, but I disagree. The first routines were built around not just blackface, but any number of exaggerated ethnic stereotypes, including the Irish, Germans, and the Jews. There was definitely some unintentional social commentary going on. Due to the influences of people like Carlin and Mark Twain, I went into comedy understanding that it's not just about making people laugh. It's our job to be the lovable dissidents. The great masters of stand-up comedy have no doubt mastered the art of lesser magic. In the clip I just played of Lenny Bruce, the audience goes from stunned silence to applauding in less than a minute. Humor is an invaluable tool of the lesser magic practitioner. Any man can tell you its value when attempting to pick up a woman. When correctly applied, humor has the power to lower defenses, diffuse anger, and build a sense of camaraderie with your subject, whether it be a room full of people or some hot chick at the bar. Virtually any seed of thought can be planted if only you can manage to make them laugh. I am convinced that most of the people I know that don't like tomatoes feel that way because of this. 
Tomatoes don't look right either. On the outside, they're fine. Tomatoes look lovely on the outside, but you look inside a tomato and something is wrong. Something has gone afoul inside of a tomato. It doesn't look right, you know? It doesn't look like it's finished yet, for one thing. It looks like it's in the larval stage or something. There's thousands of seeds and a whole bunch of jelly-looking stuff. Ugh. 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 Get it off my plate. Ugh. It's squishy. It's like that stuff at the end of an egg. Ugh. Ugh. And I know it's not the end of an egg. It's the beginning of a chicken. It's hen come. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to someone telling me their supposed feelings on a given subject, seemingly unaware that they were actually telling me how Carlin felt about it. I've been memorizing that man's act since I was seven. That's not how you feel about driving. That's how George feels about driving. For years, I couldn't figure out why I would get enraged when some putz would tell me to go first at an intersection. Then I realized it's fucking George's fault. The man was a walking meme. Humor, like music, invokes emotion and thought. It triggers a reference in the listener's brain and elicits a response. Hopefully laughter. Laughter releases endorphins, which relaxes the human body and puts it at ease, making the subject more prone to suggestion. This is why you all hate tomatoes because of George Carlin. He suggested it to you while you were laughing. Keep this in mind the next time you find yourself in a situation where a person or persons you're speaking with need to be disarmed, relaxed, or have their focus shifted to you and your desires. Hone that tool. Embrace it. Use it. And for fuck's sake, never apologize for it. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Something Different with Heather Height on Nine Cents. You can listen to new episodes every week at ninecentspodcast.com. My name again is Heather Height, at Heather Height on Twitter and Heather Height on Facebook. You can email me at heatherheight at yahoo.com. I look forward to hearing any feedback that you might want to give me. As long as it's positive, doesn't hurt my self-esteem or make me angry, and then I have to, like, you know, castrate you with my words. On that note, have a fantastic week. Hail Satan.
I'm a den or den. If you ever get cold, you can stay in the corner of a room. They're generally 90 degrees. Or you can listen to my segment, Militant Eroticism, at the end of every month on Nine Cents Podcast. I'll either piss you off or get your pelvis grooving. Either way, you'll be warm. I am not a liberal nor a conservative. I am not a Democrat nor a Republican. I am not a socialist nor a capitalist. I am not an authoritarian and I'm definitely not fighting for your cause. I belong to no party, I support no politicians, I am loyal to no state, and your cause celebra means nothing to me. I am Darren Deicide, Agent Provocateur. Welcome to Agent Provocateur! I am Darren Deicide, and this is the billion-dollar American scandal that nobody knows anything about. Is this you, John Wayne? Is this me? Go to Facebook.com slash Agent Provocateur on 9 cents, the number 9, to see my newswire. It's essentially the source material so that you know I'm not completely crazy. And I'm bringing this up early because the astute observer of my newswire will notice a handful of notable stories that have been breaking water on occasion and ought to merit some questioning. Have you ever heard the phrase, your tax dollars at work? It's an interesting phrase because it's rather defensive. Doesn't it sound a bit like a politician's way of saying, I swear the money I forcibly took from you is not being blown on a weekend in Atlantic City? Usually they plunk a sign with that phrase next to some decrepit bridge that a private company was commissioned to fix. I underline the word private because it's worth noting and something that has a tendency to be forgotten in the idealistic American mind about how money moves from their paycheck into government hands, and is finally spent on something. Conservatives whine about that money being spent on the poor. Liberals demand the transaction happen more frequently. Both are predicated on the idea that there is a tension between private and state power. But what happens when that tension doesn't exist? How much goes to such ventures? And what is the nature of these ventures? I like to measure money in terms of food. It's something we, regardless of cultural background, can relate to. Everyone knows what a shit ton of food looks like. Imagine $5 of food. Now imagine $100 worth of food. You see what I'm getting at. I will defend my food-to-currency conversion ratio hypothesis against any political scientist. Now I'm certain $100 worth of food was a decent pile of food in your mind. Now imagine a billion dollars worth of food. In 2004, the Office of the Special Inspector General for Iraq Reconstruction, or as it's known by its acronym SIGIR, I hope I'm saying that right, was created as an oversight institution to account for the aid that was handed over to the provisional government in Iraq from 2004 to 2013. A similar institution was created in 2008. The National Defense Authorization Act established CIGAR, also known as the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. The stated purpose of this commission is to, quote, 
promote economy and efficiency of U.S.-funded reconstruction programs in Afghanistan, and to detect and deter fraud, waste, and abuse by conducting independent, objective, and strategic audits, inspections, and investigations. According to SIGAR, as of September 30th, 2014, the United States had a appropriated approximately $104.08 billion for relief and reconstruction in Afghanistan since 2002. These funds have been allocated into many major areas. The overwhelming majority of that budget, $61.54 billion, was put into Afghanistan's military and policing infrastructure. $4.07 billion of that was put into counter-narcotics enforcement. And if you follow my newswire, you know how well that has been going. The rest of the approximately $42 billion was put to humanitarian aid and civilian operations. What these organizations have discovered has been quite interesting. John Sapko, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, revealed in his yearly audit this year that, again, there's virtually no way to know what happened to a large chunk of money the Defense Department spent in Afghanistan before 2010. To his credit, Sapko has been increasingly vocal in his admonishing of what is happening. So far, according to an analysis by the Fiscal Times, approximately $45 billion is unaccounted for in the reconstruction aid sent to Afghanistan. The report blamed the Pentagon's earlier and since discontinued process for tracking contracts. Today, when Department of Defense awards a contract, it enters the contract into the Federal Procurement Database along with the specific pool of money that will be used to pay the contract. Before 2010, however, the Pentagon wasn't required to identify the pool of money the contracts were being paid from when it came to foreign military equipment and arming the Afghan National Security Forces. Well, who knows what happened to that, huh? And this doesn't even account for any bridges that might have your tax dollars at work posted next to them, if you catch my drift. The report reveals that out of the $66 billion the Department of Defense has spent in Afghanistan, an overwhelming majority, more than $57 billion, has gone to the Afghan forces. But the Pentagon can only account for about $17 billion. I hate to say it, but this is the tip of the iceberg. In the course of the nine years the United States installed the Iraqi provisional government, $8 billion of the $52 billion of tax money that was handed over to Iraq is missing. Sigir's report stated, quote, A full accounting, if ever possible, would require combing through mountains of disordered electronic and paper records accumulated since 2003 that are currently stored in multiple locations across many agencies, end quote. This report concludes the full story on the use of billions of U.S. dollars for reconstructing Iraq will forever remain incomplete. A Congressional Research Service report published in 2009 said much of the money that was lost to waste, fraud, and abuse, Stuart Bowen Jr., then Special Inspector General Sigir, testified to Congress in 2009 that 15 to 20 percent of this money was wasted. Quote, the overuse of cost plus contracts 
high contractor overhead expenses, excessive contractor award fees, and unacceptable program and project delays all contributed to a significant waste of taxpayer dollars, Bowen told Congress. I could go on and on citing all sorts of astronomical numbers. This isn't enough. Look up the amount of money that went down the sewers when USAID tried to rep repair Kajaki Dam in Afghanistan. How much food does $266 million look like in your head right now? In any sane country, billions of dollars of money that was fleeced from people's paychecks would be cause for a major scandal. But not in this new America! I'm sure many of you have burned the midnight oil trying to drive from one state to another down a desolate highway in the wee hours of the night, so you could relate. It's hard to be concerned when you're barely awake at the wheel, America. We are a far, far cry from the Americans that mounted the Whiskey Rebellion or Shays Rebellion. This America is the fat basement-dwelling spawn, sitting with a Nintendo controller in his hand and a giant bag of Doritos in his lap, saying, Yeah, Mom, I'll get to the laundry after I defeat this level. I've expressed what I consider the disposition of American policy that perhaps could be best encapsulated by what Thomas Jefferson stated as the goal of American foreign relations in his farewell address to the nation. Peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. The independent character that won the American Revolution, a disposition long lost upon these pathetic excuses for Americans who would easily relinquish their own self-reliance for a small sense of security. But let's throw the ideals away for a second and take a moment to look at this wanton waste of money that was forcibly taken from us as citizens of the United States of America through a different lens. We could take the conservative sympathetic point of view and say, well, what do you expect? These things are bound to happen in politics, in which case they will continue to happen. We could also take the liberal sympathetic point of view and say we need to allocate our money more effectively and have a higher level of auditing, which tends to ignore the whole point and purpose of leveling a country and rebuilding it from scratch for profit. But bear with me, if you will, and take a moment to envision this. I don't even want you to think of $45 billion worth of food, the amount missing from the cigar audit. And I want you to think about the many Iraqi or Afghani children buried under rubble. I assume that the time of this broadcasting is Memorial Day. According to the VA, almost 50,000 veterans of the war in Iraq are homeless, many of whom are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. About a fifth of the estimated 240,000-plus veterans of the war with Iraq some 20% of the American force that invaded Iraq, who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. On this Memorial Day, while politicians grease palms with billions of dollars and hook up their executive buddies with million-dollar contracts, think about what $45 billion of mine and your money could do for them. This has been another agent provocateur. Fellow thought criminals, Never stop destroying the gullibility and lies in the pursuance of truth. Take care.
Welcome to another Old Nick's Peep Show. The only segment that delivers beautiful women, masculine men, and intriguing information on all things Old Nick. Joining us as always is the very first Old Nick chick, which Marilyn Mansfield and her handsome man, managing editor, Willock Zothamog. How are both of you today? Hello. We're doing very well. How are you, Adam? I am <laughs> I'm doing quite well. I'm a couple glasses of wine in, and I hope I'm not going to be too off topic. <laughs> because oh, no. Well, we're, we're catching up right now. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> we're getting started. No, I actually have pink. How do you say it? Mos- Moscato. How do you say it? Moscato? Moscato, yeah. It's really girly, girly. Isn't that a challenge? You know? Sweet, it's like right? Pink, bubbly, sweet champagne. It's really. <laughs> <laughs> He's laughing at me as he drinks his straight whiskey. What is that? Whiskey? Yeah, of course. I don't know, looks like he already already mixed some stuff with it. I don't know what he did over it. I don't know. I try to make my own little concoction there. Put the whiskey out, a little water, a little lemon juice. (laughs) I got to tell you, there's there's a lot to be said about uh, a a good wick. I can't even fucking talk. A good whiskey (laughs) cocktail. I I grew up wanting so desperately to like Jack Daniels that I would just drink it straight from the bottle and. After a couple of drinks, it doesn't matter whether you like it or not because you just can down it. I never really enjoyed it. And I had a friend, an older friend, who talked heroically almost about whiskey and water. I never quite understood it. It took me, I don't know, maybe a de- like 10 full years to really understand the whiskey and water. But now I, I totally get it. Like drop a couple cubes of ice and just sip yeah. and you're good to go. Yep. Yeah, that's what he does. Yeah, that's what I always do. I always put like three cubes of ice in my in my glass, mm-hmm. and then you know, in the beginning, it's kind of like it's a little rough. But then towards the end, once it starts to water down a little bit, then it's a little smoother and more more pleasurable. Yeah. So sometimes when I just want to drink it faster, I just add a little water. Plus, it, I used it to know a guy you. I used to hang out with. He used to drink yeah. whiskey on the rocks, and he used to get a glass of water, and that would kind of be like his chaser. Oh, and that yeah. I never understood. I was like, "Well, are you drinking water? He's like, nah, it's good that way. And I was like, all right, whatever. But <laughs> you just have to combine them, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought you were supposed to chase it with beer. Why would you chase it with water? Uh, you're thinking of that song. One whiskey, one, one bourbon. One bourbon, one, beer. one scotch, and one beer. I dig it. That's yeah. John the Hooker all the way. I was not anywhere near thinking <laughs> of that song. <laughs> it just all right, happened. well, that's how old I am. Okay. <laughs> I love that. All right, well, we are here to talk Old Nick, so let's let's chat a little Old Nick magazine. Anything new happening on the Old Nick fronts? We're we're expecting a ep- issue sometime soon. Um, yeah, you know the new issues in the works. Uh, volume five, number one, is going to feature uh, the return of Scarlet Black. She'll be the new Yay. centerfold. I like yeah. her a lot. Yeah, she did that wonderful burlesque she, performance yeah, for us. Yeah, she was really sweet too. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also probably going to have a feature on the surrealist artist H.R. Giger. Oh, shit. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, also another awesome. feature on Nathan Gray. Yay! I've heard of um, him. You know, some more music reviews that I'll probably write. Um, we're going to have some more of the uh, fiction, the sexual fiction from Pagan Slut, the S&M stories. Um, you know, there's more things in the work. I don't want to give too much away right now. But yeah, uh, that's, uh, right now, that's the little tease that I'll give you. I'm excited about I'm Nathan Gray. Nathan Gray is awesome. Yeah. I'm a he's fan. good people. He's he's surprisingly down to earth for a musician. I mean, traditionally, 
at least the ones I've met, are genuinely full-on airs with themselves and just sort of high up and, you know, sort of out there. Uh, Nathan's pretty down to earth. I dig that. Yeah. Yep. I like him as a person. I like him as a musician. I think his uh, stuff is great. Yeah, we got we along saw him, him in, in Yeah, York. yeah, we saw him um, in, in New York City, and uh, that was the first time we met him. We hit it off really good, and everyone had a great time uh, oh, at yeah. Autos that night. That was a cool show. That was Darren was playing, Man in Black, yeah. and um, Nathan. It was really fun. Yeah. 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 I, I got to say, anytime you can hear Darren play, I'm totally game. I, he is uh, one gent I really, really dig. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've been, you know... Uh, following Darren stuff for years now, so oh, yeah. you know. Yeah, I, I really appreciate great. what he does. Yeah, awesome. Well, really, really I, I hope you'll excuse me. I really want to double back on the Scarlet side of things. <laughs> and yeah. I, I've talking to the other, I've spoken to the other contributors about the Conclave, the uh, Church of Satan Year Fifty in DC uh, International Conclave. I haven't spoken to you about it. Now, of course. We were all there, and it was fantastic. But there was a very special presentation of old Nick there. Um, yeah. I don't know how much we can really get into, but I will say I was wildly impressed with the burlesque dance that you alluded to. Yes. yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bob, Magister uh, Johnson himself is impressive. Yeah. I mean, that's oh, yeah. just, you know... Bob walks into a room and, you know, everyone's impressed. <laughs> so <laughs> him just standing there, you know, talking is, uh, yeah, is, is just, you know, I mean, he is, he brings such an element of, um, you know, class and yeah. yeah mm -hmm. Like, you know, just, um, he just knows how to carry himself, you know, and, and he's just, he, you know, he is old Nick. So it's just, yeah. he knows how to deliver the goods. Right. Right. So <laughs> right. You know? you know, he has that old, Frank Sinatra, you know, thing about him. I don't know. <laughs> no, that is true, though. So the first time I ever met him was a couple years prior to Conclave. Um, and he was just chilling in a smoker's jacket, looking dapper as shit, and just being just being him, you know? Yeah. It was really, really cool. His humor, his uh, on-point commentary, like, everything about it really, like, this is a gentleman that is, he's totally worth his salt, and it's someone that you really just want to sort of sit on a bar stool next to and just absorb. It, I know this sounds kind of weird, but it's true. Like, you really just want to sort of take him in. And yeah. then on Conclave, <laughs> we actually had... Uh, you know, I, I don't know how much sort of behind the scenes we want to throw out there, but there was a little bit of setup involved, of course, with anything. And it was his direct, honest, I am not okay with how this is going approach. Let us adjust fire. I mean, it was, it was, I want to be, you know, through his eyes here, I want to be represented in this way. I want this to be shown in this way. Let us make this happen. I really appreciate that as not only obviously as a Satanist and as a human being, but as a designer, I, I like that an individual has such passion about and performance. Like they want to make sure that it all falls in line. And old Nick has always done that. And having been behind the scenes there and watching it, it was amazing. It was, it was really quite well. And then of course, presentation time. Everyone was dressed to the nines, and and <laughs> the music kicked in, and it was quite, 
quite the spectacle. I was uh, very excited to have witnessed it myself. Yeah, I mean, that's the great thing about Old Nick is that, you know, Bob Bob is running it, and Bob has such high standards, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. when I met Bob for the first time, I flew out to L.A. Um, I was going to help him promote um, Old Nick at a uh, fetish club night, and he, you know, pulled up alongside in a limousine in Hollywood <laughs> and uh, came out and he said, you must be Marilyn Mansfield. And I was like, you must be Madison Johnson. And I got in a limousine and there was like three naked girls in there, topless, you know, <laughs> wearing horns. And I was like, this guy is the shit. <laughs> it <laughs> is know, on. And we just hit it off right away. But he even, you know, even in a nightclub, he had that, that you know high quality standard that you know even if he hung up a sign it didn't look right it came down you know what i mean mm-hmm. and that's how we that's how he um does the magazine too that's what makes it so special and so classy and so great everything bob does is a hundred percent you're never going to get anything that is you know less than that i mean if he you know throws a party he goes all out you know if he does the magazine he goes all out if he does a presentation he goes all out and that's what makes him you know bob yeah. <laughs> I think it is important to note, too, because, you know, at at some point, a lot of businesses, they start at a a personal, this is my passion, this is what I want to present the world level, and then they sort of progress in a very corporate way. Old Nick Magazine hasn't done that, and that's what's really fantastic about it. You, You start with a gentleman who is every much the equivalent of of the height of the rat pack and has a passion for women and the finer things in life and shares that with other people through old nick magazine a very uh uh uh, left-hand path uh uh, sophisticated uh, air to it he carries that through to 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 every single side of it and and so yeah i sort of want to double down on this idea he pays it off through who he is he doesn't compromise and and that's a really important thing to understand it you know there's one thing about i want to make a buck and there's another thing saying i want to represent myself through my passion and, and share it with the world. And that I feel is what old Nick is. Yeah. You know, and it's true, you know, he does, he, he definitely, um, is one of a kind and he is, you know, a great, a great individual. And, and, mm-hmm. and Zoth and I have been very lucky to have, uh, been working with him for years and to have become, you know, um, he's become part of our family, you know? So, mm-hmm. you know, but, I mean, yeah, his the presentation at Conclave that he put on was absolutely amazing. <laughs> it, was cool. it was way cool. I liked it. I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let me ask both of you uh, individually. I mean, we, you know, we're talking about old Nick and we're talking about Magister Johnson, but how was the Conclave for you? Uh, any highs, lows you want to share? Um, for me, I mean, it was life changing. You know. It was uh, amazing. Listening to all those presentations was definitely my favorite part of it. Um, you know, it's just I th- I think it's I think it's you know I mean it wasn't shocking, but it was it's it's just you know we got to realize um, that day you know just I mean I I knew it, but 
just to, you know, I got to meet a lot of people that I've only spoken to online and things like that. And just to see all the different types of individuals that are in this organization and the different, you know, every presentation was so different, you know, but they were all so great that it was like, wow, you know, I I really felt lucky to be among such um, impressive people, you know, and um, I don't know, we, we just had a fantastic time. Um, it was great to see our old friends like you, you know, and, uh, meet some new people. Mm-hmm. And just like I said, I mean, the presentations were, um, you know, I mean, and, and, uh, Blanche's, um, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, that, that just, you know, I mean, that was just brought tears to my eyes, you know, I mean, that was just so touching and Peggy and, and, and Peter's, um, uh, presentations were just, you know, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't talk about a way to, course, to put it, but... yeah, to end the night. I mean, uh, Peter's yeah, presentation was stellar. It was yeah, awesome. Yeah, that that was life changing. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. there was a moments in your life where you're just like, I am. I, I left there like I'm so happy to be alive and to be who I am. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And I know Zoth felt uh, same way. Uh, yeah, I mean. The highs were pretty much everyone's presentations. I, I felt, although each one was different, each one was really good in its own yeah. way. And I really liked the fact that they were very different. You know, mm-hmm. I like um, I like the way your uh, demeanor became almost like a preacher. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, like it, it blew me away. I that mean, I, I felt your energy. I was standing on the other side of the room yeah. when you were when you were presenting, and I felt your energy i was like whoa man this guy's blowing me away you yep. know and you know, yep. kevin you know he just he's oh, so kevin passionate yeah, you know and then kevin some people badass. were funny and some people were were intellectually like blowing my mind and you know and and then of course you know everything that happened you know um the the, the end there when when mm. peter spoke was really yeah. like uh, you know, I don't even want to touch on that. But and then of course Bob's, I yeah. loved it. I yeah, loved that was Bob's. Bob was so, <laughs> so cool. cool. And it was like lip syncing, smoking yeah. that little cigarette. <laughs> it was great. It was so cool. You know, I felt so happy. You know, just to even be a part of that, just yeah. a little bit. You know, I was like, yeah, this is really. Yeah, cool. Zoth helped with the uh, backstage stuff for that, so that was great. You know, the the only lows I could say was that it was over. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, it ended quick. Like we were sitting there, like. Wow, we were really sitting here five hours. We listening like it didn't even feel like like five hours. You know, we were just so <laughs> intrigued by yeah. what everybody was saying. And then, obviously, um, Cardone is yeah. phenomenal. <laughs> and we, we got awesome. to see, yeah, we got to see some stuff we've never seen. Like, we're, and we're still wondering how he pulled that gallon of water out of his sleeve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. <laughs> and Darren, of course, was amazing. You know, uh, the call me up on stage was really sweet of him for the cocaine yeah. song. You know, that's something that uh, will go down in history. You know, that video. <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. everyone, I, I mean, I don't know about literally, but it certainly seemed like every single person was singing along. Oh, yeah. Darren, you know, it was Darren, just so yeah. fantastic. There was yeah. such a such an energy about it. And yeah. I don't know, I, at least for me, you know, from the outside looking in, you think, oh, it's a satanic gathering. You have all these images in your mind. But it was yeah. really just, I don't know, it, it felt like a bunch of old friends getting back together and just enjoying each other's company. Yeah. You know, it was just, you know and it, every every it was, time we're together, I mean, every time Darren plays the show, that's what happens. Everyone starts mm-hmm. singing. The ladies start dancing, you know, and mm-hmm. it becomes like a big, fun thing, you know? Yeah. And 
And it was great to share that with other members that we never get to see because they live far or whatever, you know, like you and, and um, you know, other people that came down. Um, it was just, I think it was, I think it was great. It was perfection. Yeah. Definitely mm -hmm. glad we went. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I feel sorry for those who missed out. <laughs> Rubbing it in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, well. Not something to miss. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I do have to say that, that there was, there was only a, a couple of really amazing highlights. One of them certainly was, um, uh, Master Johnson and the Old Nick presentation. It was phenomenal. <laughs> and just to be able to to watch, to witness it, really, it, it was an absolute privilege. And I'm so incredibly excited for this new issue, especially after having seen the burlesque performance of Scarlet Black, uh, to have her as a, a centerfold again in this wonderful magazine. It's going to be really exciting. Um, how can those who were unfortunate and didn't actually attend Conclave, uh, but also just uh, fans of the magazine connect with Old Nick online. Um, well, we have, of course, the website is OldNickMagazine.com. All the links can be found on there. You can follow um, me on Twitter at OldNickChick. Uh -huh. And Old Nick Magazine has a Twitter as well. Um, you can follow us on Facebook and Pinterest and MagCloud, and um, uh, just all our social media links is mm -hmm. on the Old Nick website. Just click on to oldnickmagazine.com, get past the homepage, and scroll to the bottom, and you'll find all our links there. Well, I definitely do suggest everyone keep an eye on Old Nick in social media. Collect this newest issue, and as they're available, do yourselves a favor and connect with the past issues they are all absolutely fantastic and it is it is such a privilege to have both of you on the podcast and talk to you about old nick uh, this is something that is going to be remembered for years uh outside of satanism just on its own which i think is just a fantastic notion of itself thank you both for joining me thank you for having us as always adam it's always so much fun oh thank you the pleasure is ours as always well, until we can chat again, hail Satan. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. And that's going to do it for another show, people. We hope you enjoyed it, and we would love to hear from you. Submit your questions to which Zaftig, and submit your concerns or corrections to me, info at Let us know if we're doing something right or if we're doing something wrong. You can always visit us in social media. Ours. You can visit our arses in social media. Uh, Satan at Facebook, Google+, Twitter, MySpace. Uh, anywhere you want to uh, find us, we probably are online so you're going to get our show notes you're going to get uh contest announcements you're going to get project awareness uh you get to connect uh with satanism a little bit greater if you follow us there so do yourselves a favor people you can always download the show mondays via the rss feed found at ninecentspodcast.com but if you don't want to we're also on last fm stitcher and youtube uh you can subscribe via itunes 
Anywhere you get us, leave us a rating or comment. We always appreciate it. And though we may not always respond to it, we do truly love it and it does help other people. All your comments are welcome. If you'd like to learn more about Satanism or the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And remember, the only way we're going to continue doing this show is via your interaction. So, interact. Once again, thank you for joining me. As always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, being joined by... Witch Zaftig. The lovely Witch Zaftig. You know, I... <laughs> this is funny, because I get to see Witch Zaftig every single month, and it is spectacular and you guys you think her voice is great if you just sat where i'm sitting oh, oh you yeah. would be so jealous because my hair is one of those messy buns <laughs> loose messy buns on top of my head there's no makeup Sexy. on it. yeah Love it. Oh. i have like highlighters in my hand <laughs> <laughs> the oh, best academic porn ever <laughs> highlighters <laughs> in your hand <laughs> One's yellow and one's green. Ooh. <laughs> Alright, well until next week, people. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. <laughs>